0: Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. America is a nation of immigrants, and her power and resilience have come from her diversity. The lines from Emma Lazarus' 1883 sonnet, The New Colossus, continue to adorn the Statue of Liberty, which greeted immigrants that arrived nearby Ellis Island. However, today, the government views these sacrosanct words as mere scratches on stone, the federal government is ramping up detention with a bed quota this year of 51,000, a quota that has been steadily increasing to the benefit of private contractors, which manage nearly 75% of immigration detention centres across the country. These centres are in deplorable conditions and usually built in isolated areas, which makes visits from family members and lawyers onerous. Project South in the Transnational Legal Clinic at Penn State documented systemic human rights violations of detainees at two Georgia detention centres, the Irwin and Stewart facilities, including forced labour, denial of medical care, clean water, proper sanitation and food, the customary use of solitary confinement, including and in particular on detainees that have expressed mental health issues, and the obstruction of proper and private communication between detainees and their attorneys." This has led to physical and mental injuries, as well as deaths at the Stewart Detention Center. On May 15, Project South and the Transnational Legal Clinic at Penn State submitted a communication on the human rights violations of these centers to several UN special rapporteurs, including on the human rights of migrants, for a coordinated visit. ICE used to concentrate on arresting and deporting aliens that have committed crimes, but now this has been quite loosely interpreted by more active local operations to include traffic infractions, and this unbridled enthusiasm to arrest people coupled with an overtaxed immigration court and the lack of right to an attorney has led to the deportation of law-abiding persons that are separated from their families including the parents of young children, as well as the deportation of lawful permanent residents and even citizens, some who have been held in immigration detention for over three years. I spoke about these issues and more with Azadeh Shahshahani, the Legal and Advocacy Director of Project South, the Institute for the Elimination of Poverty and Genocide. Welcome to Gravity, Azadeh.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Let's start by discussing Project South's mission and its advocacy work.
1: Sure. So Project South started in 1986. We are an organization based in Atlanta, but we work with uh, communities and grassroots organizations across the U.S. South and also in the global South. And our mission is to help support and build social justice movements. So uh, we provide um, the skills um, that are needed in terms of um, these you know build a movement workshops, or you know providing a spaces where uh, community members and grassroots activists could come together and uh, strategize on uh, basically the state of the movement and what is it what it is that we want to achieve and the next steps. And um, the legal and advocacy work of Project South has started in January two thousand and sixteen. So we work to uh, defend and protect communities under attack um, basically in the U.S. South um, and we have some partnerships with folks in the global South and we um, work in support of um, Muslim, Middle Eastern, South Asian, immigrant and black communities.
0: I'd like to now focus on the community outreach work that you do in the southern United States and how various communities are impacted there by racial and anti-immigrant policies.
1: So, as I mentioned, we do a lot of work in support of immigrant Muslim and Middle Eastern um, South Asian and black communities and um, you know, communities uh, continue to face discrimination of varying kinds. Um, so, for example, religious discrimination, um, so I handled a case where um, a woman, a Muslim woman um, who wanted to gain access to the courthouse back in um, 2009, was denied entry because she was wearing a headscarf. So she was basically accompanying her nephew on a traffic ticket. And um, she was told that in order to be able to come in, she had to uh, remove her headscarf. And so when she protested and said that, no, this is part of my faith and I can't do that. She was taken before the judge and the judge sentenced her to 10 days in jail for contempt of court. And so she was then taken to the, um, to the um, holding facility at the courthouse. Her headscarf was removed and then she was chained to um, other prisoners and taken to the Douglas County jail down the street. And she was held there for a few hours until there was a national outcry and she was released. And um, you know this type of discrimination, religious discrimination, we see all the time. And um, there's also discrimination in accessing um, utilities, for example. So you're talking about you know, fundamental human rights, so the right to water, um, which is being denied to undocumented immigrants in Georgia right now. So in the city of LaGrange, Georgia, they have a policy in effect that um, basically denies Utilities to undocumented people because you have to have a social security number in order to get utilities. Um, and so we're currently involved in a lawsuit challenging that.
0: Well, <laughs> this is quite flabbergasting on a moral as well as a legal level. It's patently clear that this is a violation of her First Amendment rights. She was expressing her religion and causing absolutely no harm to anybody. Right, definitely. So, yeah, this particular incident
1: happened in 2009. And so, um, at the time I was working with um, the ACLU of Georgia, we brought a lawsuit um, against the city. And so we won a settlement for Mrs. Valentine, the woman that this had happened to. And then we also went before the Georgia Supreme Court Commission on Fairness and Equal Access to the Courts. And we drafted a policy basically um, that said um, a person of faith should not be denied access to the courthouse because of their religious headgear, which is common sense. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that policy was adopted and remains in effect, but you know the type of discrimination I was just talking about happens a lot. Um, so we also learned about the case of a woman who recently, um, on a couple of occasions, was um, denied access to the jail to visit with her son, who is imprisoned there. Um, and um you know, we wrote a letter to the North Carolina Department of Corrections, um, letting them know about the law and how unconstitutional their action is. um the second time we thought that they had got the message, but you know, they still um were going to prevent her visit and then ultimately did allow her to visit with her son, but you know it it took um it took a while. um and so unfortunately, there is, um, there is um, you know, misunderstandings of the law, but uh, also I think, unfortunately, um, there's, you know, probably religious bigotry uh, in place. And, um, you know, we see the, the type of racist and, you know, Islamophobic actions that are in some ways um, playing out, um, you know, in different parts of the country and, and in the South as well.
0: Religious and possibly racial discrimination seems the only explanation for this, but I'm curious as to what ostensible reason was provided.
1: Right. Um, so, you know, in the courthouse, there was the issue of courthouse decorum, and, you know, some judges preferring that people don't wear caps. But, you know, obviously, a religious headgear is very different from, you know, from wearing a cap in terms of you know, whether a person feels that it's their religious obligation to wear religious headgear, as opposed to somebody who has the choice to take a cap off. Um, You know, in the jail context, it's usually the issue of safety and security. Um, And what we said is that, you know, fine, you can search a person and you can search their headgear, um, but it has to be done in a private space um, by um, a person of the same gender. And, um, you know, then, you know, then there wouldn't be really any, shouldn't be any issues for the jails. Um, And so we continue to monitor the situation and, you know, in Georgia and across the South. And we do hope that officials will stop engaging in religious discrimination.
0: I'd like now to return to something you mentioned before, the denial of utilities to undocumented immigrants and even it seems lawful residents that may not possess social security numbers. Is this requirement made by certain counties with the intent to deny immigrants utilities and does it have a racial basis? With respect to this racial discrimination, I know there are counties in Alabama, for instance, that are majority black counties for which the state of Alabama does not provide sanitation services and does not acknowledge it has the responsibility to do so, which is appalling. Can you please elaborate more on the denial of utilities in the South?
1: Right. Um, It's it's a very serious issue. And again, it's um, denial of basic and fundamental human rights. Um, We, um, you know, continue to be concerned about this issue um, and we, um, you know, definitely are monitoring it and will you know, will keep documenting. Um, So, um, you know, there was a visit by the UN Special Rapporteur um, on extreme poverty and, you know, there was some documentation and reporting on some of these issues, but I think there needs to be more happening on the US front, but also the international front to hold the US government and the state governments accountable.
0: I'd like to move to discussing detention centers now. Project South produced a very instructive report on the appalling conditions of two detention centers in Georgia, the Stewart and Irvin detention centers. The conditions of these centers is deplorable, and there appears to be a systemic violation of the human rights of detainees there. In Stewart, it appears that some people died from want of appropriate care. May you please elaborate more on the conditions of these centers?
1: Right. Unfortunately, It's a very serious issue, the conditions at these two facilities. Um, So just over the last year, we have had three deaths um, at the Stewart Detention Center, but also the Atlanta City Detention Center. Um, So we had um, a young man, John Carlos Jimenez Joseph, who was um, kept in solitary confinement for 19 days and he committed suicide. Um, a person with um, mental health issues. And let's remember that solitary confinement um, has been um, found to uh, basically lead to deterioration of a person's mental health condition. Um, And and, um, a former special rapporteur on torture has basically found that um, solitary for more than two weeks um, basically amounts to torture and yet we see this happening at immigration detention centers across the country and at the Stuart Detention Center. Um, Most recently, we had another young man, 33-year-old Julio Castro, who died. Um, He was detained at the Stuart Detention Center, and he got pneumonia, and um, originally, Immigration and Customs Enforcement put out a press statement saying that he had refused medical treatment And after all the press attention and the public attention, they were forced to basically issue a modified press release and say that, well, um, he um, basically didn't respond well to um, to the administered treatment. So you know, this type of lies, unfortunately, is all too common, and it's just a question of when and whether ICE is going to be held accountable.
0: I think one problem is that ICE self-reviews and it's doing a pretty shoddy job of it. It also appears to have a policy of delaying its reviews of centers so that some cases have been pending for over a year in what may be an effort to prevent reporting on these catastrophic conditions.
1: Right, it's really unfortunate. ICE, um, you know, After we put out this report was dismissive of our report. And then, of course, it was only a couple of weeks later where John Carlos Jimenez, Joseph, the young man who I mentioned, uh, um, 27-year-old, committed suicide at the Stewart Detention Center after having been left in solitary for 19 days. So um, we basically said at the time that this tragic death would have been preventable, which is true if the government had paid any attention at all to our findings over the years. About the Stewart Detention Center, you know, this this detention center should have been shut down a long time ago, um, and yet ICE continues to defend um, the operation of this facility despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. We also um, brought a lawsuit um, a, a couple of weeks ago in collaboration with um, SBLC um, attorney Andrew Free and the law firm. Burns Karist, uh challenging the practice of forced labor at the Stewart Detention Center. Basically, the facility is paying um, between one to four dollars a day um, for the work that um, they should be hiring regularly uh, waged employees for. And so, um, as a result, the corporation that runs the facility, Core Civic, formerly CCA, is um, making a lot of money while immigrants are suffering. Um, you know, there have been cases in the past where immigrants haven't even been getting paid for the work that they have been doing. They've just been getting some extra food. And there are cases of retaliation in the cases where immigrants refuse to work, refuse to continue to participate in the work program. So um, one of our clients in the lawsuit, Shoaib Ahmed, he, um, when you know, he hadn't been getting paid, for the work, he said that, well, he doesn't want to participate in the work program anymore. He was actually placed in solitary confinement.
0: Well, that's quite abominable. So we have forced labor in detention centers and most, it seems, about 75% are privately run? More or
1: less. um, I think the latest figure that I saw was um, 73% of immigrants are held in facility operated by prison corporations, and I think we are only going to see that number go up, unfortunately.
0: The Government has had a policy of escalating detention. In 94, there were 6,800 detained persons on any given day in immigration detention, which steadily rose in 2017, to 40,500 detained persons on any given day. And this year, DHS requested increased funds to have 51,000 persons detained on any given day. They're asking for billions, yet these centers are privately funded and in deplorable conditions, so one has to wonder where the money is going to. And we know where it's not going, We have reports of maggots in food, moldy showers, broken telephones, no books. Is this just a money-making scheme? Definitely,
1: definitely. I think after 9-11, especially a lot of these prison corporations that were not doing well necessarily financially, all of a sudden, um, they found a great opportunity in terms of um, detention of immigrants. And so we've seen the numbers go up drastically. And just you know, go higher and higher. I mean, the rates, the numbers that we have now, we have never seen before um, in U.S. history. And you know, it's only going to get worse. As I mentioned, um, just um, yesterday, uh, Jeff Sessions announced a renewed commitment to basically criminalize immigrants for crossing the U.S. border or recrossing the U.S. border and ensuring that um, they are held in, um, in uh, facilities operated by the Bureau of Prisons called car facilities, um, even before they're turned over to the custody of um, the ICE. And so, um, you know, these car facilities are also operated by corporations. There was a positive development during the Obama administration where Sally Yates, the Deputy Attorney General, came out with a memo and said that at least when it comes to the Bureau of Prisons Facilities, there should be an effort to um, basically get the prison corporations out of, the, out of, uh, out of this business. Um, unfortunately, when Trump came to office, one of the first acts of the Justice Department, Jeff Sessions, was to throw that memo out the window. And so we're back to square one in terms of um, private corporation uh, operation of these prisons as well as the immigration detention centers that are run by ICE.
0: This situation provides ready forced labor for these private contractors. What is the policy reason behind putting people that have committed no crime but merely immigration infractions into prisons? Is this simply to provide a forced labor force? Prisons are not, of course, under the FLSA protections. If this is not it, what could be the reason behind these quotas and ramping up detention?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the the motivation behind all of this and, and the driving force is the lobby power of the corporations. So um, there is this detention, immigration detention quota in place where Congress is basically mandating ICE to maintain at least 34,000 beds on a daily basis. Now, this type of a quota you don't have in any other law enforcement context. And given the high percentage of immigrants that are held in facilities operated by corporations, which as I mentioned um, is about 73%, it's no surprise that... The prison corporations continue to lobby for this quota to remain in place, as well as laws such as Arizona's um, anti-immigrant law, which passed back in 2010, and a number of copycat laws, mainly in the South, that um, are put into place with the intention of ensuring additional apprehension and detention of immigrants to keep these detention beds filled and to ensure... Additional profits for the prison corporations.
0: I'd like now to discuss cooperation between police authorities in the South and ICE.
1: Yeah, um, there are various types of collaboration and various levels of collaboration between police and ICE um, in different parts of the South. So um, there was just actually an investigative piece published about the county in Middle Houston County. Which um, turns over a large number of people to ICE. We actually had a meeting with them um, a couple of months ago um, to try to understand what they're doing and what their policy is. And so basically, they hold people on the sole basis of an ICE hold, which is not, you know, an ICE hold is not a judicial warrant, it has no judicial force, but they um, hold people for 48 hours on the sole basis of an ICE hold, giving ICE a chance to come and pick people up. Um, And this is unconstitutional. You know, it it is plainly unconstitutional to um, hold people where there is no probable cause, there's no separate basis for their arrest. Um, And as they pointed this out to them, localities elsewhere have been sued for that. And yet, unfortunately, they continue to engage in that practice. And you know, they're not alone, um, there are many um, localities in Georgia and across the South that um, continue to unconstitutionally prolong people's detention on the sole basis of an ICE detainer, or um, engage in other types of collaboration with ICE. Um, there are sheriffs who run on an anti-immigrant platform. Unfortunately, hostility towards undocumented immigrants and Muslims is viewed as being popular um to you know in in some parts of the south still um and um, you know they think they're going to get elected and get additional votes um if they appear as anti-immigrant as possible Um, and so in georgia actually our lieutenant governor who wants to become governor is running on an anti-immigrant platform and has done all he can to uh, introduce additional legislation um, that will ensure additional collaboration between local police and ICE.
0: I think this type of collaboration is quite unconstitutional. The police authorities do not have any immigration jurisdiction and I don't think the public discourse reflects this. For instance, the cities in which police authorities do not collaborate and do not overstep the jurisdiction are termed sanctuary cities as if they are doing something over and above the jurisdiction when the reality is the averse. That's
1: exactly right. And um, it's also not their job. And, you know, it's um, basically adding something to their plate that they're not trained to do. And they don't want to do, Um, you know, many police um, agencies across the country have a step forward and said, you know, we really don't want to be in this business of immigration enforcement. It's not our job. Um, And yet the Trump administration continues to try to force Um, local, um, you know, police departments and sheriff's departments and cities to basically collaborate with it in enforcement of immigration laws.
0: That's quite unfortunate. Well, I want to move on to something else that's quite unfortunate, and that's the recent Supreme Court decision in Jennings versus Rodriguez. This case holds that all aliens, including lawful permanent residents such as Alejandro Rodriguez, are not entitled to a bond hearing and can be held indefinitely. You wrote a very instructive Salon piece on this. May you please elaborate on the ramifications of this unfortunate decision?
1: Right. It was a really um, sad um, day to see this decision coming from the Supreme Court. And, you know, as I said in the piece, I I wish the justices had met with some of the immigrants in these horrible detention centers and learn about the conditions that they are facing. Um, But the good news is that the decision doesn't completely eliminate the right to bond. The Supreme Court decision left the door open to um, future challenges brought on constitutional grounds. And there definitely will be challenges um, on behalf of immigrants on the issue of indefinite detention. And here's hoping that... Um, The judges and justices will find that immigrants indeed do have constitutional rights to be entitled to bond and not to suffer indefinite detainment.
0: There was a decision by the Supreme Court that said that aliens on American soil, whether they've entered legally or not, have the Fifth Amendment right of due process. Now, it seems to me that if you have the right of due process, a minimal due process right should be that you are not held indefinitely and are entitled to a bond hearing. So, this recent decision seems to contradict this earlier decision and is quite an aberration from previous case law. Definitely.
1: Definitely. No, I definitely agree with you. And there have been many decisions saying that immigrants indeed are entitled to constitutional rights. I mean, you, you know, you have the Constitution in many instances, uh, in, you know, when it comes to rights, the provisions talk about um, every person rather than, you know, a U.S. citizen. Definitely it's our hope that the courts will find that um, immigrants do indeed have the right to periodic bond hearings on constitutional grounds.
0: To what extent does ICE and the Bureau of Prisons detain persons passed in order that they be deported, and how does the recent decision in Jennings v. Rodriguez affect this?
1: Right, so there is a Supreme Court decision on point on the issue that you're talking about. It's called Um, And so basically what Zadvydas says is that if a person's removal is not reasonably foreseeable, then the government can't continue to hold them indefinitely unless they are proved to be you know, danger to national security or under some other narrow exceptions. The government has to release them at some point. So, you know, concretely when this came into play is, for example, um, nationals of Somalia. So, you know, for a long time, Somalia did not have a functioning government. So if a Somali national was ordered deported, but they could not obtain travel documents because the government wasn't functioning, per this decision, their removal wasn't reasonable and they couldn't obtain travel documents, then the government couldn't hold them indefinitely. Um, so Zadvaidas is still you know, on the books um, and so many immigrants um, who continue to languish in detention centers and have already been deported but their removal is not reasonably foreseeable could um, and should be released. The problem though is the issue of legal services and access to counsel. If you're an immigrant and you don't know the law, and you know, remember immigration law being so complicated, and so there's no reason to expect that you know, everyone would be aware of the this Bid- decision, for example. So chances are that immigrants who would be entitled to habeas, um, according to Zadbaidus, are being continually, uh, continually held in detention because you know, there is not legal representation available to them. So unless, you know, by chance, an advocate or an attorney learns about their case and then follows up, they continue to to languish in immigration
0: detention. So the big problem here is that we have these labyrinthine laws that people are expected to negotiate when English is not the native tongue, which may provide additional difficulty, but they don't have the right to an attorney. They merely have the privilege, which means they have to know, without the assistance of an attorney, that they have this privilege, They also need to have funds to afford an attorney or know how to access pro bono attorneys. And one recent unfortunate decision by the Justice Department has been to curtail a legal assistance program to detainees, which makes this even more problematic.
1: Well, I think they brought it back. They had the LOP, the Legal Orientation Program, um, that basically is run by um, nonprofits, including Catholic Charities. Um, The Department of Justice had um, basically halted that. And there was such massive outcry that they were forced to bring it back. But definitely there's a dearth of legal services when it comes to immigrants. And an important fact to keep in mind is that immigrants are not entitled to court-appointed representation during the course of their removal proceedings. Whereas in the criminal legal system, though it is faulty for sure, at least people who are caught up in it um, in most circumstances do have the right to a court-appointed attorney. The same is not true of the immigration um, deportation system. And so then what happens is that you actually have U.S. citizens who have been detained and have been deported. So I myself was involved in a case several years ago on behalf of a U.S. citizen, Mark Little, who was born and raised in North Carolina. And he was at a jail for um, inappropriate um, touching of of somebody. And so he was at one of these jails that have a close um, collaboration with ICE. And so somebody at the jail started questioning him about his citizenship status. And he continued to say that, you know, look, my name is Mark Little and I'm a a U.S. citizen, but that agent did not believe him. And so they basically made up an identity for him. And they said that, okay, no, you're Jose Thomas and you're Mexican. And so then he was brought to Georgia. He was held at the notorious store detention center for six weeks. And he was ordered deported by a judge and sent to Mexico, a person who does not speak a word of a Spanish. And he also has some mental health issues. Can you imagine it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really the stuff of horror stories and yet it happens to U.S. citizens a lot. And, you know, after several months of wandering the streets of different Latin American countries and trying to basically survive by begging and living in shelters, finally made his way to a U.S. consulate and somebody took the time to listen to him. And so they contacted his family and so they sent over his documents and so he was finally able to come back to the U.S. But you know, so long as our immigration system is so faulty and is so lacking in due process and representation for immigrants, you can continue to um, see this type of case, this type of outrage where even US citizens of color are not immune from being detained and potentially being deported.
0: Well, how much more Kafkaesque can you get? We're deporting citizens. That's appalling. <laughs> And it's not just a singular case here. We're regularly detaining and deporting citizens. Lack of access to attorneys is one reason for this. Another is the rocket aspect of the docket. I understand that immigration judges typically go through 50 to 70 cases in a matter of hours. And this situation seems to be only getting worse because the DOJ has provided immigration judges with quotas to complete cases, which appears to provide them an incentive to simply skim over complicated cases and reject them.
1: That is exactly right. Um, You know, under this administration, unfortunately, things are only getting worse. And so I think we really need to demand that Congress, that um, our congressional representatives hold this administration accountable instead of continuing to fund this detention and deportation system that affords people very minimal due process and um, you know, detention system that is right with abuse.
0: So it seems that ICE is moving towards a policy of detaining all asylum seekers, even those that are en route to Canada. Counties that have ICE facilities in the US, I understand are paid quite handsomely by ICE for this, while a multitude of detention centres are privately run. So it seems we're detaining people because counties and private contractors benefit from this, not because these people are a threat to anyone in our society or a flight risk.
1: Right, yeah, I mean money is a big driving force, and then again, um, lack of accountability, um, which again, where Congress needs to step in and just, um, you know, cut off funding, um, cut off funding to the system instead of continuing to reward this administration with additional money for this system.
0: I agree. The thing that's a little stunning is that in May 2017, Congress supplemented ICE with $2.6 billion and may have given them even more this year. But while they appropriated funds to ICE, Congress also excoriated the agency for overstating its budget, for instance, in how much each bed would cost, and requested that ICE do a thorough review of its procedures. And back in 2009, Congress added language to an appropriation bill that ICE must terminate all contracts where the operators of a detention center have failed two consecutive inspections, a completely reasonable request. ICE, however, has not complied with this, and its policy of delaying results of inspections may be tied to centers that have previously failed an inspection in an effort to retain their contracts. However, while ICE is not complying with Congress's terms, it nevertheless continues to be well funded.
1: Right. Um, So I think it's really up to us as constituents and as um, the American public to hold our congressional representatives accountable. So we actually um, sent a letter to the Georgia Congressional Delegation back in November that was signed by 70 organizations uh, demanding action from, um, from Congress um, in terms of the Stewart and Irving County Detention Center in particular. We demanded that they step forward and call for an investigation. And we met with some Georgia Congressional Representatives Unfortunately, we have yet to see any real um, response. You know, we will continue to follow up with them and, um, you know, hold them accountable as well.
0: What have you found to be the most effective advocacy outside of the courtroom to propel change?
1: Well, one is just to raise public awareness. You know, a lot of people are still... Are unaware that these detention centers exist, um, sometimes in their own backyard, and that it is their tax dollars that are going um, to be spent to um, to fund them. Um, so that's you know really step number one, and then providing people with the tools, with the advocacy tools. So you know we have had some small victories. So in Georgia, we were able to um, defeat a bill. Um, that, as I mentioned, was pushed forward by the lieutenant governor, that would have ensured um, additional and unconstitutional collaboration between local police and ICE. Um, there was, you know, lieutenant governor and you know some other leadership behind it, and um, uh, and you know it, it had a good chance of passing, but with the continued public mobilization, we were able to defeat that measure. And then also, we have had victories on the local level in eight Georgia localities so far um, that have put into policies, put into place policies limiting their collaboration with ICE when it comes to um, the continuing um, detention of somebody on the sole basis of an ICE detainer. Um, and so, I think victories are still possible, you know, on the local level, um, you know, at least in in Georgia and many parts of the South, where state level. Uh, work yet may not be possible, but I think um, locally is where people will have the greatest chance to um, try to, um, to try to score some victories um, through uh, building relationships and also um, um, engaging the broader public in pushing forward um, some of these policies.
0: Thank you very much for your time Azadeh.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.